giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, and today we're doing something a little bit different, and that is uh, talking about something that's timely in the news, which we almost never do. And I am joined by Nick Charlton, who is co-host of another one of the ThoughtBot podcasts, Build Phase, our iOS development podcast, to run down the news from the first day of WWDC. Nick, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So Nick is a developer in ThoughtBot's London office. I should have mentioned that. And the one thing about the simultaneous event that happens everywhere, it happens across time zones. Uh, so for you, it's happening at dinner time, And for us, it was at lunchtime. Yeah, absolutely. So we sat down and had pizza and sat our way through the, the keynote, the first just about two hours, I think, approximately. Did you watch the platform State of the Union yet? So I've watched about half of it so far. Yeah. The platform set of the union is the one that I look forward to a lot more. It has the detail right. of what we're going to be able to do with stuff. And that's much more actionable, at least. Right. So for those who don't know, there are actually two keynotes, essentially. There's the one that is first, and that is much more of a marketing. Uh, here are the new products. Here are the consumer-facing features. They often throw a little bit in on the development side because it is WWDC, but yeah. it's often not a lot of development stuff. And then if you're in San Jose, you break for lunch. And when you come back, you come to the what they call the platform state of the union. And that is a much more technical overview. They typically go over Xcode, changes there, uh, the specific large APIs that they're introducing, that kind of thing. And this year was no exception. So if we want to talk about both of these things, we have a, an immense task in front of us to <laughs> go through these ev two events in any sort of reasonable time frame. So I hope you're prepared for a speed run of <laughs> this news, Nick. Absolutely. How quickly can we get through everything that they discussed in yeah, I several so hours? I, I think that it is unrealistic for us to try to expect to run through everything. So maybe start high level... What's your takeaway? For me, the, the big thing is iPad. Uh, they've been going slow for the last while uh, and not really doing all that much with the iPad. Mm -hmm. And today they launched the beginning of multitasking with some quite impressive drag and drop stuff going on. Uh, so multiple selection with your fingers, um, moving apps around, and you can like open apps by side by side along the other yep. ones just with using the drag and drop stuff yeah and, and really sort of introducing a dock <laughs> and that is actually a functional dock those kinds of things right to the iPad. yeah absolutely like previously that's just been a way of putting your top five or so icons on every screen which is questionably helpful but now it looks like it would be more interesting and in yeah for me the biggest takeaway is the mac updates the fact that they just updated the MacBook Pro line last year, and now they're updating to the newer processors as, as soon as they're ready. That's something that Apple hasn't done for quite some time. <laughs> and, and so it'll be interesting to see if that this is a new trend and they're getting back to updating the computers on a regular basis. That's the consumer-facing thing. The fact that the source code editor in Xcode and the improvements to Xcode 9... The source, new source code editor is written in Swift. They said in the platform State of the Union, they've completely rewritten it in Swift. 
and it's faster and more modern and has a lot of new features that are really good. I've always felt like if you're going to have an environment where you're saying we are providing an IDE, then you better really make sure it's really, really good. And it hasn't been really, really good. And a lot right. of what's in Xcode 9 makes it seem like, okay, they're headed in a really good direction here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So for the last while, especially with Swift, uh, hasn't had any refactoring support and they've pulled that in. Um, they've done lots of stuff with understanding the intent of the code that you're writing, which is a massive step up from what we've had for the last couple of years of Swift, where we've, we, we've kind of had a slightly questionable text editor and something which effectively generates make files. Yeah. So the first thing they talked about was tvOS, or essentially the first thing they didn't talk about was tvOS. So they, they said Amazon Prime Video is coming and yep. then said we'll have more about tvOS in the fall. So something I, I noticed about that announcement was that it was for the first announcement we've seen in a, a kind of while where they've pointed out that they're working with other people. Mm -hmm. and, and something that you saw later on in, say, the iPad announcement was something with unified file management, as called, where it's actually files on, on iOS are going to start working in ways people actually use them yeah. uh, rather than assuming everyone's using, say, iCloud Drive, which I don't think anyone actually does, um, and instead integrates with, like, Dropbox, which is something people do actually use. Yeah, I think that there was, um, you know, who knows where the VR stuff is going as well, but that was another area where they said, we're doing a bunch of stuff to support VR, and they didn't actually announce anything besides Metal 2 and better graphics cards in the computers, but they said, you know, these people are providing support for it. We'll see if Apple does some specific VR stuff in the future like in terms of hardware of their own and that kind of thing. But that's another area where they, they left it almost entirely up to uh, third parties. Right, absolutely. The big hardware announcement I suppose they had there was external graphics cards with right. the Retina Mac Pros. Maybe it's not something which is all that concrete, but it is something which is suggesting that that's something they have actually considered and they haven't just completely ignored, which is probably right. something which we'd been seeing before. Yeah, I, I think in the platform State of the Union or, or some other session, something somewhere, they did get a little bit more concrete with that. It's a dev kit you can buy and it's 599 US dollars, 599. Okay. And it's not an Apple made hardware. And it'll be a box that you can attach via Thunderbolt 3 and put a graphics card in. So that's a similar model to what they did with the display, the LG 5K, I think, yeah. display that they released recently where they've worked with another hardware yeah. manufacturer. Yeah. So after tvOS came Apple Watch updates. Do you? So I wear an Apple Watch. Do you? I do. I, I do wear an Apple Watch. Um, again, I think here maybe minimal updates were talked about. And I think I got the impression that maybe, especially when they started to demo, there are actually more changes in watchOS 4 than they specifically mentioned. I think it seems like maybe there's some design changes and that kind of thing. But big features were the Siri watch face, I guess. Yep, Siri, a feature I basically don't use. <laughs> well, so last year they introduced these features of your device knowing what, basically Google Now kinds of features, and they were called proactive or something like that, right? And now they've rebranded those to Siri. And they've done that as they brought it to the watch. And then they've done that for a couple of different things where they, they've started calling essentially 
anytime there's machine learning or anytime there's something proactive or assistant based or that kind of thing, it's all starting to be called Siri now. Yeah, that's an interesting trend. I'm not quite sure how that will work over the longer term, but I guess it is something that people can identify with closer is having a specific brand behind all the intelligent things right. that it's starting to do. Right. And then Bluetooth low energy support directly from WatchKit or, or the WatchOS was the other big feature that they talked about to enable direct connect between watch and other devices. Yeah, that uh, fits with something which I see here. Like it, it's a fitness device, basically. That's That's why people have an Apple Watch. Yeah. The only other features they talked about were fitness features, work changes to workouts. Besides yeah. Siri watch face and the other watch face, the Pixar ones, that kind of thing. Really, th that was the focus as, as a fitness device, which is how I use it. Yeah, that's exactly my use. I don't have a gym subscription or anything, but mm -hmm. I would be interested in that data if I had a way of connecting something to it whilst I ran. So then they move swiftly on to macOS. <laughs> So I don't know about you, but I totally thought that the, because they've done this joke before where they said that people went out, they got high <laughs> and they yeah. came up with these funny names. And so they did the same thing. Only this time it wasn't a joke. <laughs> I couldn't believe that that was actually the name. I thought it was a joke. It took me a minute of uh, them just yeah. continuing to talk about it. I had hoped it was a joke, but alas. <laughs> yeah. We're back in the world of boring names again. Yeah, yeah. But it's not important. Yeah. I don't think. So the new name is macOS High Sierra. So they specifically said this is a performance and refinement release, sort of in the way that Snow Leopard or El Capitan was. Yeah. And I think that that's good. You know, macOS seems pretty stable, pretty, you know, there's not a lot of huge user-facing things that I'd say are needed right now. So focus on fundamentals and improvements. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. They had a big hardware bump recently, added the touch bar, which is kind of a way more of trying to work out a way to stuff the hardware they'd already built for the Apple Watch into laptops. But yeah. otherwise, everything's steady as they go. Do you use Safari as a browser? I do, yes. <laughs> uh, me too. I, I use it as my primary browser. So I'm looking forward to Safari getting faster. The reason why I use it is... Oh, two reasons. I think it's faster and more performant in terms of energy usage, but then also the integrate. Like I like having bookmarks synced across iOS and that kind of thing, and handoff and that kind of thing working. Yeah, I don't use those features all that much, but the I, I do notice the performance with battery life. Mm -hmm. So I'll have I'll always have hundreds basically of tabs open, and that would be impossible with Chrome, for example. Yeah. That would be that would be impossible. And new file system, APFS, Apple file system, which rolled out in iOS, <laughs> what, what version? 10? Yeah, it's 10. So the, uh, the, yeah. it is, you, you basically got forced upgraded uh, when 10 came out and no one noticed. Right. I think it might have been perhaps one of the only file system upgrades that has been so underreported, like no one's noticed. Yeah. And that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, that's something which I think we all hope for is in some ways that you do a large internal refactoring, which is kind of what it is and no one notices. Yeah, so hopefully it's smooth on macOS too. Obviously our file systems are more complex on macOS. We do a lot more crazy things because we have direct access to the file system. Yeah. But it is going to be the, I think they said new default, whether that means that it's going to convert when it ships 
your existing things. I don't think they've said that. What I've seen already of people trying it out is that it upgrades your file system when you do the install. Okay, well, that's big. That's huge. Um, I, I did also hear that they still haven't fixed the whole progress bar issue. It goes back in time now is the current <laughs> bug if it determines that it's going to take a lot longer than it was. It kind of goes slowly back left instead of right. <laughs> uh, that makes total sense, doesn't it? That's it, it's a, Yeah, I guess it does. <laughs> okay, so then they started talking about Mac hardware. Any Anything else to say about Mac OS? Uh, the only notable thing is 64-bit. Oh, Mac yes, that was in, in the, the Platform State of Union. Yeah. So this will be the last version of macOS that supports without pain, or what did he say? Compromise? I yeah, think without, without compromise. Right. And then the next one will probably present a warning when you launch a 32-bit app. And I then after that, so. undefined behavior after that. <laughs> They'll probably just not allow you to run, I would, I would suspect. That would be something which is possible to do. Yeah. But that they've laid out a roadmap for how this is going to go on the Mac App Store. Mm -hmm. So in the next six months, so by January, you'll only be able to submit 64-bit apps. And by June of next year, you'll only have 64-bit yeah. apps on the Mac App Store, yeah. which I guess fits with this release and what will become the next release with High Sierra. Yeah, and I think on iOS, it's gone pretty well. I think iOS is much more lo locked down, though. So I think that the chances that there are Mac apps that just you use that are old and outdated and not going to get updated, I think is higher because there is, you know, it's not everything through the App Store. But I think for me on a day-to-day -day basis, I, I'm not using any of those applications. Like everything I use is updated. I just got a new computer, which we'll talk about in a second. And um, I have installed a handful of programs and they're all either from the Mac App Store or, you know, new, freshly maintained apps. I'll be interested to see how that's changed over time. When OS X first came out, it was several releases, at least until Tiger, so 10.4 before you could no longer have the classic environment running. Mm -hmm. So I'd be curious to see if we've sped up in that regard and it won't be such a significant burden for people to move over to 64-bit. Yeah. Um, so then they launched the new iMacs, updated, I think, every single iMac that yep, they ship. So. You know, anything to say about the iMac updates? I don't use an iMac, although I've thought about it. I think as a company unless we're not using linux we all use macbook pros right i mean it has the benefits of being a laptop so we can move it around but i think there's no general desire for us to to change that right um so imax isn't something that we generally have yeah i think a couple people here have them at home which is where i've considered it yeah. i ended up getting a an older or they haven't updated in so long but ended up getting just a mac <laughs> mini uh used yeah for home that's what i ended up doing it still has an old spinning hard drive, though, and it's so incredibly slow. How do you deal with that? <laughs> I don't. I don't use it very often. It's basically just a server and a printing right. and that kind of thing, scanning. So what I did think was interesting was them going pro with the iMac. That's curious to me. Most of my the, the usage I know of Mac Pros has mostly been in, in the server environment. So, for example, our friends at CircleCI have hundreds and hundreds of them, and by several every month to yeah. deal with their growing capacity and i don't know what's going to happen with that so it's used as a server because it's the best way to run 
CI services, yeah. which is if super important for development. And what I found was interesting is with that is they referred to it in the, platform, the start of the platform state of the union about improving their CI support. But now they maybe don't have the hardware to do that. Yeah. So, so in the context, though, they've already said that they're going to release a new Mac Pro. And they've been very weird about what the Mac Mini means. So there are other things coming that w will be more traditional. Yes, I think that's likely. Um, I think we don't have that information now. So we're right. just kind of blue sky thinking as such. But... It's interesting that they've been talking about vague understandings of how this Mac Pro would be, and then they've launched an iMac Pro. Yeah. Leaves me slightly concerned. I think that, for me, they did introduce it with a certain context, and they said there's a need for high-performance workstations. And they, they sort of specifically called the iMac Pro a workstation. Yeah. And so I think that there probably is... You know, when they launched the Mac Pro... They sort of introduced the like a sort of a launch partner was um, Pixar, and they had demos and videos about Pixar using it and everything. And I think that that is sort of the use case for the Mac, the, the iMac Pro of like, hey, we need high performance workstations. You want a 5K monitor anyway? It's an all-in-one workstation and 5K monitor, but it's not meant to be the um, totally modular customizable computer that certain professionals want yeah absolutely i agree with that 18 cores <laughs> that's a lot of cores it sure is <laughs> i will not be getting an imac pro but uh it's they basically put the mac pro inside the case of the normal imac they didn't increase the size of the case at all it's exactly the same case as the normal imac yeah i thought that was pretty impressive yeah I, i'd be curious to see if the whole thing melts yeah, how how burnt people's walls are when they're going to be put against the wall, just likely. Yeah, yeah. So that ships in the fall. Every all the other updates they start shipping right away, pretty much. But this uh, one is a sneak peek. They said for what's yeah. coming in the fall, and they updated the MacBooks, MacBook Pro. They even updated the MacBook Air to a newer processor. I presume because that you can't buy the old one or it's going away soon. I would imagine so, yeah. This is where, so recording a podcast that hasn't gone out yet, I accidentally spilled seltzer on my computer and fried uh, the computer. So I, last week, got a new MacBook Pro 13-inch, which I will be returning and getting the new one. <laughs> and I think it's worth it to do that because... The previous one, I had a 13-inch MacBook Pro from 2013. So if you're going to keep a computer for four years, I figure, hey, it's within the 14 days. Swap it out for the newest one. And so it'll last as long as possible. Yeah. I would imagine that will go out to be refurbished and go straight back into the store again anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a reasonable expectation that Apple have when they release new hardware that people who just bought something are probably going to return it. So um, any thoughts on the MacBook Pro updates? No, not really. Pretty straightforward. KB Lake, the newest. Standard CPU upgrade, yeah. and that was it. Right. No movement on the maximum RAM. Right. But it's nice that they did it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> then moved on to iOS 11. 
so between iOS 11 on iPhone and iPad, there's a lot of changes, particularly on iPad, which we already talked a little bit about. So for me, the two big things were Control Center. I think the new Control Center update looks really good and person-to-person Apple Pay. I think that's going to be pretty at, big. At least in the U.S. And <laughs> <else>. <laughs> Whoops. Yes. Although of all the companies doing things, I think Apple has a really, really good track record of international support. It will come with time, and it's something that we have in, say, Europe anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have new banks and services which are doing effectively the same thing. Yeah. Do they have things like iMessage apps and that sort of thing? I believe so. Mm-hmm. I've, not something I've used. It would never have the same level of integration that Apple would provide, but it will still be there. Yep. So do not disturb while driving seems really cool too. So this is essentially do not disturb. That goes into effect automatically when it detects that you're driving. Yeah, that seems pretty smart. Yeah. And probably something needed. I don't know. I don't drive, so. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't drive that much, but it sort of seems like the kind of thing that will, you know, it will save some lives if it stops you from being distracted. So that's nice. And this is one of those areas where, at least in the U.S., I've seen several news stories over the last year or so about certain communities or whatever ramping up pressure on the phone manufacturers, certain governments saying, this is a problem that you need to address. And so it's nice to see Apple somewhat proactively addressing it before things like regulation and that kind of thing have to force them to do it. Yeah, that is nice to see. The App Store completely got a new redesign, which is very, very different. It looks like Apple Music. Yes, which, it essentially looks like Apple Music. It's something I noticed from the at least the beginning of the Platform State of the Union is that's a trend that Apple are seeming to push across a lot of things. They provided a demo of an iPad app with drag and drop, and the left-hand menu was had a similar kind of style as Apple Music. Yeah. And actually, they've changed UIKit to be able to be that way, no longer have header in the title sort of bar and and that kind of thing. And you just set options on your classes to get them to look the way Apple Music looks now, which I think is cool, but it's not the default yet. So you have to opt into the new look if you want that. Yes, I would imagine that that might be a hint for the future. Yes, yes, seems like it. But I think the App Store change is, it's very different. Like you don't see as many things on screen as one time. There's, it's heavily sort of curated. They have articles about apps, that kind of thing. So it could potentially really change how people find things in the store and how people make money. So we'll see. So then they talked about three new APIs in iOS 11, Core ML, ARKit, and, um, oh, I guess they talked about Metal 2. And so Core ML is uh, machine learning out of the box built into iOS. It's actually on Mac as well, as far as I can tell. Um, Oh, right. Interesting. I didn't see that. I didn't have a chance to really dig into it before we talked, but... I don't see why it wouldn't be. If, if it's not, it's just a matter of time because what they've essentially done is taken the face detection, the vision, all those things that they were doing in their own apps and 
made it accessible to everybody else. And photos on Mac and everything does those as well. I think they're interesting. It's something which they've done in an interesting way because at the same time they were emphasizing privacy and data sharing. Right. And that's almost making their lives difficult for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't learn from such a broad data set if you're not collecting all this data and putting it into one big pool. So... Yeah, so everything's happening on device. That's yeah, important. Which contrasts with everybody else who's doing this stuff where it's definitely all your data has been collected in one place and they're using that as the data set that they're learning against. I'm interested to see how well that will work. Yeah. I think we can assume from what they've been doing so far that it's probably working okay, so it's not a big deal. Mm-hmm. So Google I.O. happened a couple weeks ago and Amanda... Android developer at ThoughtBot joined Sean on the latest episode of The Bike Shed, which is bikeshed.fm slash 112, where they did a rundown of IO 2017. But one of the things that they did was they have TensorFlow and then they announced TensorFlow Lite, which runs on your device. So that's essentially what Core ML is. It's all on device. And the machine learning models Apple has open sourced a converter to be able to take models from popular tools for creating ML models and import them into core ML. And one of the ones that's supported there is TensorFlow. Right. That's very interesting. And it's all open source, that converter. So it's potentially like one of the things that I was thinking of as I was seeing this is like, if you want to use these frameworks, it's a little bit like SceneKit, right? Like you're not going to use SceneKit if you have a cross-platform application. Right. People use Unity, for example. Right. right. You're going to use Unity. But that was my initial reaction as well. Is like, okay, if I have any sufficiently large application that I expect people to use, it probably needs to be on both iOS and Android. What is the story here for why I would choose Core ML? And it's performance. So... The reason why I might choose to use it on iOS is, to me, performance and integration with the platform itself. But even then, everything I do for it is not going to be able to be leveraged on Android. Yeah, and it's good to see them recognizing that that is a, a standard requirement. Right. You can't. It's not something we can get away from. Right. It has to work on other platforms. Right. And for a company that can be very insular in what they in their expectations are, that's that's good to see. Right. So it's not it's not the whole thing, you know. You're still going to have to implement the business logic and the app side stuff, and even like using those models will need to be different on iOS and Android. But the model could be shared. You could be using TensorFlow and Android app, and using that model that you've trained, and then import it for Core ML, convert it for your iOS version of your app. And I think there's a lot that remains to be seen in terms of what people actually do with it and whether it's good and all that stuff. But that's at least a little bit more of a compelling case for actually using it. And I think the reverse is also true. I haven't had time to dig into this either, but there's no, like, I don't think that there's any lock-in to the model information that you have. And so the reverse is also true. You could very quickly build an iOS app using Core ML that has machine learning models. And then 
um, say like, hey, we've got this, it's popular now, and we're going to bring it to Android. And there's nothing locking you in, like that data isn't, like I think you can get at it. I think you can get your model out. I think you can import it into something else. Yeah, that seems a reasonable assumption to make. And if that's something that Apple don't do with their open source conversion, someone can come along and do that. Yeah. So I'm optimistic. I don't really know. So both this and then the AR stuff is, well, I think the AR is a little bit like SceneKit, which is a really nice demo, but who is actually going to use it and what kind of apps are they going to build? Right. It seems to be something that comes around every so often. People are like, yes, build an AR thing. Right. And no one understands why other than it looks really cool. And that's arguably a good reason to do it in some scenarios, but it's not a common thing for people to be wanting to do. Yeah. And at ThoughtBot, we've done an, a couple of AR projects. And so ARKit would definitely have helped with those, except uh, one of them was cross-platform uh, on iOS and Android. Now, the good thing is, is they've actually said that Unity and is, was it Unreal Engine so, yeah. are both supporting this, is my understanding. The demo that they did during the keynote from the people from uh, Peter Jackson's company, AR company, I think Wingnut, yes, yes, that that was it. They specifically said that they were using Unreal to do that. That's a very common game engine, so that makes a lot of sense to me that that's how they would be going about building that. Right, so that's, I think they said Unity and Unreal supported today or when it comes out. So I think that's the cross-platform story there is you can still use one of the engines, Unity, Unreal, but when you're on iOS, you're, it's going to be using our kit and have the performance of Metal 2 and that kind of stuff. So we'll see. <laughs> like that, ga- that, that game, it's a really good demo to play a game on a table. But like most people play games like when they're on the subway or the tube or <laughs> something like that. You're just not going to be able to play that game, I guess. Yeah, the first thing that springs to mind is maybe you can make a very impressive D&D game Ooh, I like where... That you have live dragons that suddenly show up, for example. Yeah. Anyway, so the next thing that I thought was quite interesting was uh, Core NFC. Yes. So they're opening up. They didn't talk about that at all in the keynote, did they? It, it was in Platform State of the Union, I think. It came up, but not in any detail at all. Okay. It, it was one of those keynote slides where they have loads of stuff, which is slightly grayed out and some stuff highlighted, yeah. and it, it came up there. But it looks like they're opening up the NFC chip that is used for Apple Pay for everyone to use. Mm-hmm. And that's that could be interesting. It's previously not been possible to use it in applications, unlike for which you've been able to do on Android for the last couple of years. Yeah. So that should be interesting. And it seems like it is completely fully featured. Like It seems to me like there's nothing you can't do now. So with the core NFC stuff, you can do everything that you might want to do with nfc you can read any nfc thing and you can broadcast it seems like yes it's very similar to the private api that had already been there mm-hmm. um, it's it's common for apple to do this they'll implement an a private api keep it around for a while and then just open it up when they feel like it's stable enough and it seems to very much been a case of that i think for a little while it seemed like apple was saying like nfc is not the future like we're we're going to explore other things bluetooth that kind of stuff but 
NFC is often a much more pragmatic thing, and it's it's in a lot of places. Yes, absolutely. It works a lot better than, say, beacons do mm-hmm. in an area, which is the technology they were trying to push before. Um, in practice, it doesn't seem to work as well as everyone had hoped. You either end up with too much interference or nothing specific enough that the device can trigger an event at the right time, which these are no, no problems that you have with NFC. So hopefully we can do some more interesting things with physical interaction. Yep. Even just little things like interaction between hardware and software and quick setup and all that stuff. Apple uses NFC to do all of that stuff. They're not using... My understanding is even when they pair very rapidly with Bluetooth, I could be wrong, but I think that it's triggered with NFC. I believe it is. Yeah, I think that's how you pair your devices with, say, the Apple TV. Right. It does something very similar. Yeah. So another sort of thing in this category, which they went into more in the platform state of union is QR codes are built into the camera app now. Yep. And barcode scanning in general is built into iOS now. So they just put a whole bunch of people out of business that we're all making barcode scanning libraries. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, I I, I presume that those kinds of companies will, you know, they, they specifically said when they introduced it that we have lightweight QR codes. So what I assume that means is it really is it detects a QR code and then does links for it. And if you want to do anything else, you really need other support. Yeah, absolutely. And and something like barcodes, there isn't just one type of barcode. There's a whole catalog of different barcode types that are available. And I wouldn't be surprised if Apple only support a subset of those. Be the commonest subset, but there'll be there'll be ones which are used in certain scenarios which won't have support in iOS. But I think it's much more likely now that you'll be able to bank an iOS app and if barcode scanning is a requirement, that you'll just sort of be able to get an initial version of it using what's built in. Yeah. And then and maybe if you need more features later on you can improve it. But like out of the box, I think we're gonna have basic barcode scanning capabilities in our apps. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay. iPad. (laughs) They updated the iPad. There is a new version of the iPad Pro, smaller iPad Pro, but it is now 10 and a half inches. This is replacing the 9.7 inch that was before. It would seem that it's almost the same size as the one that went before, but they've decreased the size of the bevels, which might be something which also happens in the future, to increase the screen size, but not make it vastly bigger. Have you uh, had a chance to look at this yet? Is it the same resolution as the big iPad Pro, but shrunken down to 10.5? I don't know. I think what I had read was that the basically 13-inch iPad is you can do two apps side by side. Right. But with the 10-inch, you can't do that. You can only do the full size and half a size. So okay. my assumption is that that's sadly not the case. And it's right. not the same resolution. So but if that's size. not the case, then... Most apps, if you were targeting the big iPad and the normal size iPad before, you were probably already using auto layout. You were probably already not hard coding everything in sizes and that kind I'd of thing. I'd hope so by this point in time, yes. <laughs> yes. If not, you were in a world of pain probably. So it shouldn't be that big of a deal to have your app look okay on the new size. Yeah, absolutely. I'd assume in most cases it's maybe one or two minor changes to make sure that your design works as well as it did before. Yeah. So did you find it as confusing as me when they said the new iPad supports USB 3? 
Yes, I was a bit like, but lightning? Right. So it still has a lightning connector on it. Yes, the, the clarification was that you'll be able to fast charge on right. the the new MacBook Pro power adapters. Yeah. My understanding was always that lightning allowed for this. That was part of the specification would allow you them to upgrade the underlying USB. So I imagine that's what's happening. The chipset's newer and so you will get the faster data rates that you'd get with USB 3. Yeah. I'm not sure what benefit we'll get from that on this. I think it's just faster charging. Yeah. So far, I mean, I'm not quite sure what the benefit we'll get on an iPad might be, but that is probably something which will happen over time. It's also almost certainly something that they're going to do on the new iPhones as well. Because there's already a rumor that says that they were going to do that. And when the rumor came out, everyone freaked out because they read the rumor as... They're switching to USB-C on the iPhones. But what it probably means is this, that that it's USB-C on one end of the cord and lightning on the other and fast charging. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I think is probably, probably going so on. So do you have an iPad? Do you use an iPad? So I had. I had one for a long, a long time and I gave it away. Cause, or I gave it to my mom because I didn't really use it. But last night on the bus, I bought another one. So that's really? interesting. <laughs> Which one did you get? I got the new 10-inch mm-hmm. iPad Pro. I will probably upgrade it relatively soon to iOS 11 yep. So for the new fancy multitasking stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to see what that's like as a piece of interaction to work with. I've always been iPad curious. <laughs> I used an iPad for a very little bit. But I feel like there's always something there for me. It's just a matter of part of what I use my computer for is coding. And the idea that I just don't have one device anymore that does basically everything I need, and that includes coding, I just move around too much. I have to, like, I I carry this smaller computer. This is one of the reasons why I use a 13-inch MacBook Pro as well, is, like, I want one device that's going to work on the airplane, on my desk, everywhere i bring it back and forth to work every day like it's just how i use the device yeah i'm similar computing at home i suppose isn't something Mm -hmm. i do as much as maybe i did a couple of years ago and it was nice to be able to pick up a different device that say is more focused on reading or or maybe just writing Uh, so not writing code but but writing prose and that's something i used to use the ipad a reasonable amount for so I have a 7 Plus is my phone. And when I got the Plus, I found that I didn't see as much use for the iPad anymore. Right. I'm hoping with this multitasking stuff that maybe something is more possible there for someone like me who does spend the predominant amount of their time programming. So I use an iPhone 7 Plus as well. But it makes me think of the question, which I haven't had a chance, and maybe you know, is any of the drag and drop stuff coming to iPhone? I don't know yet. I'm hoping that some of it will. I don't think mm-hmm. a lot of it makes sense. Right. But my assumption is that it's just a UI kit thing. Right. And so we'll get the benefits everywhere. You're absolutely right. I think it doesn't work everywhere. But they also have completely rewritten how in-app drag and drop. They expect you to use the new drag and drop frameworks for essentially all drag and drop, even within your own application. And they, yep. in the platform State of the Union, they demonstrated that almost exclusively and then how it, you can then move stuff to other apps too. And the key interaction that they're doing there is once you start dragging, the iPad 
and this would work on a phone as well, continues to work exactly like you would expect. You just use your other finger. And so there's really no reason on a phone why you couldn't start dragging something, double tap the home button, switch to another app and drop it. Yep. I think that part of it makes a lot of sense on the phone as well. So that's Mm -hmm. probably something we'll see. Something I was notable was the amount of times they pointed out that you get a lot of this free. So the standard UI text views and text fields and so forth will all support this drag and drop stuff out of the box. So if you drag, say, an item from Slack, for example, it'll paste in presumably a formatted version of the message. Right. So in theory, at the very least, you could use it instead of copy and paste. You select some text and start to drag that, and then you can bring it into another app. Yeah. I'm looking back at the list here for Platform State of the Union before we talk about the HomePod. So we already said new source code editor, entirely written in Swift, and refactoring support. Yeah, the refactoring is really interesting. It's something which we haven't had at all with Swift. So the best that we had was some slightly questionable conversion from Swift 2 and 3. And there's a lot more in-depth there. It understands a lot of the structure of your code and the intent that you're trying to do. And this is something that the Swift Playgrounds app for iPad does, Mm -hmm. but they're bringing it to Xcode as well, which is to have suggestions for what you might want to do. So say you've got an if statement, it can suggest that you might want to add an else to that, for example. Right. And in retrospect, I think you can see how all the pieces came together here, which was... It wasn't that surprising to me that they didn't have refactoring support for Swift. You know, they were accomplishing so much so quickly with Swift that I could envision that that would be left for the future. But what was obviously happening in retrospect was that they were rewriting the the entire source code editor. And so rewriting that source code editor to support refactoring in multiple languages. And it's not just Swift now that the refactoring works in its Objective-C Swift. And they also said C++ and C. They did, yeah. I'm also not surprised at all that this is dropping at the same time where we can start using Swift in multiple different language modes. So Mm -hmm. this is the next big thing that they launched, which was something we were expecting. We're expecting source compatibility, but they seem to have done it in quite a nice way. So you're now going to be able to mix and match Swift 2.3 and Swift 4 targets. Is it at the target level or is it at the file level? I think it's at the target level. Yeah. So that means that we can create frameworks and use them across different versions of Swift. And that's acceptable. That's the thing that they'll allow. Um, and that's good. That's very good. That's something I feel like has been a big problem for working with, say, smaller organizations mm-hmm. and building Swift apps. Mm-hmm. It means that you end up spending several weeks when the next version of Swift comes out to just effectively rewrite everything in place because it's not compatible. And that's been a bit of a bugbear of yeah. certainly mine. Yeah, and even the then even if you do want to rewrite for Swift 4, the, the changes between Swift 3 and 4 are much less than, like, say, Swift 2 to Swift 3. Yes. Seems much more um, digestible now. So I think it's going to be pretty smooth. It's interesting, as, quick aside, hopefully quick, uh, it's interesting... They did go over changes to Swift 4 in the keynote or in the platform State of the Union, but the Swift is open source. So everything that they talked about that doesn't touch Xcode, that doesn't touch Swift Playgrounds, it was already known about, which is really nice, I guess, and interesting. It's a different kind of situation. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that 
has been discussed in the open on mailing lists mm-hmm. for the last while. Um, we touched on a few things on the last episode of Build Phase about how some of the evolution proposals were going and some of that. And it seems to be working quite well, although they, they're definitely rehashing themselves back and forth a few times and not quite sure what they're going to do until they settle on something. Yeah. Um, but what I have heard is that's actually how Apple are like internally anyway. So it's not surprising that that's just been pushed right out into the open as we discover what a company that's never really done anything in the open mm-hmm. is now starting to try and do. And in a way that involves the community. So like putting up these proposals and getting community feedback on them is tough. I mean, Swift is super popular and lots of people pay attention to it. Other changes, the simulator, you can have multiple multiple simulators in parallel, different versions running at the same time. Right. So there was special support for this for like watch apps, for example, right? where you could have a watch simulator and a iPhone simulator working together, right? Yeah. But beyond that, people may be surprised to learn that if you wanted to do any interaction between multiple devices in the simulator, there wasn't any support for that. Right. So there'd be so many scenarios where I'd be, say, working on something which had chat, for example, so you were chatting between one person and another, say, into user with a device, and you'd have to run the simulator on the Mac, and then I'd have to go and grab my phone and use that as the other device because you mm-hmm. couldn't have two simulators running at the same time. Whereas now that's something we'll be able to do and that's that should be good. This also percolates through and I, I think it still remains to be seen exactly how and we don't do a lot of UI testing, but they specifically mentioned that all tests now are parallel across different kinds of simulators. So you can run your, your tests on, for example, iPad and iPhone 7 at the same time you should also be able to do UI testing now across multiple devices by launching that that way. The APIs for that have massively improved over the last year or so. And I'm hoping mm-hmm. that this means that it's gotten even better than it has been before. Traditionally, we found that UI tests just are really flaky on iOS. So you'd end up with loads and loads of failures, but they, they wouldn't really be related to the truth. So we yeah. ended up stepping away from it, which is a shame because it's something we would do on everything else. Yeah. Previously, if you wanted to do any on-device stuff, you needed to plug in your phone or your iPad or whatever, and now it's all wireless. Which I'm sure is something that you released a few years ago, and then it presumably just disappeared. Yeah, did they, I don't think they ever released it. It might have been in a beta. They certainly announced it a few years right. ago, and then it never got into a, a final release. But uh, So the way it works is you plug it in, the first time and then you get the option of doing it wirelessly after that initial setup yeah which is going to be super nice anything that you want to add uh codable is the most interesting of the new frameworks or language features and that's oh, going to yeah. be built in json serialization it's going to be interesting to see how that's going to go and what the how good or how bad the the api is going to be to work with but it's good to have it right in the language itself and not as a third party Mm -hmm. you specifically talked about this on the last last episode of build face right i believe we did yeah this was i think jack said i saw this proposal but i'm not sure whether it went through well it apparently went through (laughs) and perhaps in a a different way from the proposal that we've seen Mm -hmm. before i I think it's come out in a different way but so we obviously at thoughtbot have a json parsing library uh, called argo and 
Argo is interesting because it started a little bit as an experiment and specifically around taking concepts from Haskell and seeing whether they could be done in Swift. So it's very sort of different, but it's quite popular. A lot of people use it. So we're obviously, I saw in Slack last night as as we're working through this, really figuring out what's good, what's bad, whether it's going to work, how that affects Argo that kind of thing. And I think as we usually do with these things, one of the benefits of working on a lot of apps is we can try a lot of different techniques. So like for the next iOS app we build, we can specifically say, let's not use anything. Let's use the built-in stuff so we can find out where its boundaries are and what it's good for, that kind of thing. Yeah, and we can see whether or not in practice it's fine. And maybe the future of Argo is a new version that brings some of those concepts to the built-in approach, or or maybe that's it. Maybe it's time to sunset it. That's also possible yeah i mean we love when (laughs) there was obviously a need for this kind of thing and it's worth noting that json is just a format what this changes to swift is it's actually for ruby developer it's a little bit like serializable right so you can basically write different serializers is how it works to encode and decode things and that could be anything you could do it to markdown if you really wanted to um, or YAML or something like that, right? I got that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it's nice that that's built in. That was clearly a need. And so I love when things are built in that are a need and we can stop maintaining an open source library because the built-in thing is better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Then we got MusicKit, which admittedly I haven't looked at very much, but it seems like it's essentially all of Apple Music accessible via APIs. That's cool. <laughs> So I think Gordon was saying, I really hope someone builds a non-terrible Apple Music app. And now uh, that's going to be possible. And now so. that's possible, right. It even says, I'm looking at the notes here, that even if a user has yet to subscribe to Apple Music, you can give them an option to do that via the SDK. Oh, that's interesting. That's yeah. interesting, like upsell in an API. Right. But okay, sure. Yeah. Do you subscribe to Apple Music? I don't know. Yeah, I do in part because of the family plan. It's really nice to just have that all under one place and work. CoreML, we sort of already touched on CoreML and ARKit. So I'm really interested to see what people do with it and what applications it opens up. We'll see. It also, I'm sure, will be used in lots of places that are completely pointless. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that would be... The first six months of Core ML are going to be things, people going, oh, we can use it for this, right? Yeah. That's that's fine. And, and then we'll go, oh, that was a bit silly. Yeah. And we didn't need to do that. Right. Or ARKit, like, oh, it's a to-do list where you can manage your to-dos on your table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. I'm sure that people will use it for interesting things, though. I don't know what those things are going to be yet. It's definitely easier to see with CoreML than it is, say, the augmented reality stuff. So yeah. we'll, we'll, it'll be really interesting to see what concrete things people come out with using it. And that will happen. Yeah. And I think it's it's probably important. Like, essentially, when it comes to the face detection stuff and there's face um, milestones, uh, face milestones, I think is what they're called. That kind of stuff, you know, it's easy to sort of dismiss that and say, like, well, Snapchat's not going to use that. Like Snapchat is doing their own thing. They've already got it. Like they're not going to switch. But it's more about what it enables that hasn't been built yet, that enables the next Snapchat or the next product that's not even in that category to do something with faces or 
with people that isn't even possible now. Like it hasn't been thought of yet. Yeah, the, the first concept that springs to mind is say uh, some sort of fashion startup where the user uploads photographs of people and out of the box, it's quite hard to implement something that ensures that that photo is centered right, shows people's face and doesn't just accidentally chop someone's head off. Right. And this would allow you to have a smart set of UI hints that suggested maybe you need to pull the image down a little bit and then move it a bit to the left. Um, and it can either do that automatically, perhaps, or it can at least provide a smart UI hint and not just guessing yeah. based on image content. Yeah, and there are what we do is we help people build their concepts. And it's not uncommon for people to come to us with some sort of idea in the AR space or machine learning or that kind of thing. And it, it really, quite honestly, is outside of the grasp of most companies now. And these kinds of things move it closer to the realm of somewhat achievable within a reasonable time frame and budget. It yep. may not be what is going to serve the company forever, but it is going to be able to help us go from concept to launch within reasonable time frame and budget. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, two things on test flight. So it right, sounds right. like we're going to be able to have multiple builds available at a time. So we can have lots of different stuff that users can test. So each build could say have a different flag set that you could experiment with, for example. Right. This is different than the multiple build support that they rolled out already, I think, earlier, like yeah, a couple months so. ago, which is basically you can have multiple versions, not multiple builds. Right. And so this is multiple builds. So you can have one version, multiple builds of it, essentially test different things, A-B test have feature flags, that kind of thing. And the other thing that they announced was phased releases. Yeah. So this is more of an app store thing than a test flight thing, but mm -hmm. it means that when you release a new version of the app, it won't auto download to every single person's device in one go, and you can spread it over a couple of days. And this means that you won't get a sudden influx of traffic to say a new API that you've implemented server side and won't find that everything goes down. <laughs> You're, <laughs> It'll gradually come out over a couple of days. And it's almost surprising that it's taken this long for that to happen. Yeah. But I think this would definitely be very interesting for product companies that have regular releases or mm -hmm. maybe big bang releases. Mm -hmm. So a good example, I, I suppose, and this is an example that came up in the keynote was Things 3. This came out the other week as a task management app. Mm -hmm. They released on at like 4 p.m. UK time. But it meant that all the people who had won and downloaded that would have caused a huge spike in traffic of, of users. Um, and if they were doing a similar thing, you could potentially have that roll out on different devices over a period of time. Yeah. And that's been the case in the Google Play Store, I think, since the beginning. It's just been right. a feature there. So that should be a big deal for a lot of companies. So the one last thing was... HomePod. But before we talk about HomePod, I want to say that this episode is sponsored by nobody. We have no sponsor for this episode. So if you're interested in sponsoring the episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash sponsorship and uh, find out more. So what's your take on the HomePod, Nick? It's an interesting device. It brings with it AirPlay 2. And the, uh, the idea behind that is all about multi-room audio which is something that Sonos have been doing for years and doing really well. And it was interesting how they, in their announcement, they sort of price bracketed themselves by going, we're cheaper 
than all the competition. Yeah. Well, competition combined. <laughs> so yeah, like, absolutely. But even th at that price point, it is comparable. Actually, cheaper with most Sonos things too, right? Do you have Sonos or uh, Alexa or sorry, an Echo or anything? Both, sort of. Mm -hmm. So my housemate has the Alexa Echo thing, not the tall one, but the the small one. I I don't know what I think of it. I as not really a Siri user. Is it, I don't like to, I, I appear to not like talking to computers, <laughs> it would seem. And I find it kind of frustrating. Uh, yeah. So the, the most I get is every so often yelling, Alexa, turn on the lights. Or, oh, uh oh, it, we're going to have to bleep that out. <laughs> <laughs> you just triggered everybody's lights, Nick. I did, didn't I? So, so I'll, I'll yell out <laughs> to turn on the lights, for example, or it will interrupt whilst I'm on the phone. Because it will mishear what I'm saying yeah, and then yeah. be like, try and tell a joke. And I end up just kind of telling it to shut up because what are you doing? You're interrupting right. something which wasn't called for. So I don't, I'm not sure what I think about that as something that I'd, I'd want. But there's definitely something interesting there in the way HomeKit's going to be integrated. It kind of becomes a home hub of, of a kind right. for all your HomeKit devices. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, agreed. So I don't have any sort of Echo or Google Home or anything. I also don't have Sonos because I just couldn't justify the cost. And I knew that it wasn't just one speaker that I was going to buy. If I got into Sonos, it was going to be lots. So yeah. I specifically avoided that. But I bought a, a radio slash speaker for our kitchen. And at the time, I specifically went through the decision-making process of what to get and decided I'm just going to get this Bluetooth speaker because it will work and it's I, we don't really need the smart functionality. And if Apple is going to do something, I want to probably eventually get that just because I we do, like I mentioned before, we subscribe to Apple Music and that kind of thing. So uh, I'm really interested in seeing from a developer's perspective what opportunities not only now, but in the future come out of having the HomePod. It is an A8 chip. It is the same chip that was in the iPhone and iPad. It, in theory, has a lot of capabilities, and they're only making some of them accessible now. Yeah, that would be super interesting. I think that like a lot of first-generation Apple products, if this becomes a device that people have over a long period of time, we'll find that successive generations will become more more interesting it reminds me of the first version of the ipad the first right. version of the ipad was a bit rubbish and everything since has gotten better and better and better right i don't know if there's been any details about it does not have a screen but it does have this pulsating thing on top which looks pretty it looks like something more than just lights that's but a complex set of leds at least <laughs> yeah right so there's probably not right now any way to control that or those kinds of things from your apps, like extensions and that kind of thing. But there might be in the future. And I'm sure someone will jailbreak or equivalent thereof. Right, right. So yeah, I am 75% sure that I will end up with one of these in my house. <laughs> what about you? No, I'm no. not interested. Okay. Only Not because yet, I know anyway. that we got this speaker in the kitchen and specifically held off getting any other devices waiting for Apple to do something. And the pairing process, because it's just a normal Bluetooth 
thing. It's actually a radio and Bluetooth right. thing. So you have to do a physical switch to switch between them. And so sometimes it's not even set to Bluetooth on. And so pairing and all that stuff is just, so I know AirPlay 2 will make that better. And I like yeah, the idea will. of multi-room. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite bought into Sonos at the moment. Yeah. I, I expect to get more of the speakers and not splitting across different platforms. But I'm very interested to see where we'll get with AirPlay 2. There's, there should be some interesting things there. And it should be something that Sonos themselves can hook into. And that, that will be interesting yeah. if they decide to do that. Which if be they nice. decide to. I, one thing that seemed to stand out to me was how directly they... So they Apple mentioned Sonos directly twice in the keynote. The first time was when they mentioned AirPlay 2. I believe. And then again, when they introduced the HomePod and they're not a launch partner for AirPlay 2, they put up slides that said like, here's the people who are making speakers that support AirPlay 2 and Sonos was not there. So they are, in my mind, very clearly going after Sonos. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Like the HomePod is a Sonos. I really liked actually in the keynote how they had a very clearly articulated vision for what their speaker was going to be and what job it was doing, which is a really high quality music device speaker rather than home assistant. Although you might be able to argue that's because they, that they're pretty weak in that area versus the competitors. Yeah. But at least I thought that they clearly articulated what the, what the vision for the product was. Yeah, I'd agree. I'm interested to see where it will go in future. Uh, I won't probably be getting one but we'll see what happens yeah so nick thanks for taking the time to walk through this all with me i think we did it we kept it reasonable hopefully we just got there yeah you are one of the co-hosts of build phase our ios development podcast uh, i want to tell people how they can listen to that get more yeah, you if you go to buildphase.fm or subscribe to build phase in your favorite podcast app uh you'll find jack and i talking about Swift and mobile development and dealing with clients and all this kind of stuff that is day-to-day for us with working with mobile applications. Excellent. Uh, today's episode was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. You can get the show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm slash 241. And uh, we'll talk to you next time.